0: Kind World is sponsored by American Public Media, presenting the podcast The Slowdown. The Slowdown offers five minutes of calm every weekday. One of the most celebrated poets of our time, host Tracy K. Smith, provides insight and poetry that offers a few moments of reflection. Listen to The Slowdown wherever you get your podcasts.
1: There's a lot of competition to be the first headline or Google result. If you want to go deeper, try On Second Thought. It's a weekly podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting, hosted by me, Virginia Prescott. We talk with innovative thinkers, hip-hop legends, pecan farmers, and agents of change who just may make you rethink what it means to be second. Subscribe to On Second Thought for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Hi, this is Erica Lance. I'm the producer of Kind World. In honor of Thanksgiving, I've put five Kind World stories into one big episode. Turn it on this weekend when you want to get in the mood to give thanks. And just a reminder, I want to hear your stories, too. Email me anytime at kindworld at wbur.org. Thanks for listening.
3: My name is Maureen O'Rourke. I am originally from Worcester, Massachusetts. My dad was a um, typical Massachusetts Irishman. Very stubborn, very opinionated, but also very emotional. Over time, we noticed that his mental capacity was clearly slipping, and uh, it was, became obvious that he had Alzheimer's disease my mom diligently cared for him did everything for him and it was becoming more and more difficult and my dad developed pneumonia and was taken to the hospital and i had talked with my dad when he wasn't so cognitively impaired about what his last wishes were and he did not want to be on a ventilator have feeding tubes etc so instantly they wanted to transfer him to a nursing home and the long-term care there was just wonderful You know, the next few weeks, my dad started hallucinating, and he was gasping for air all the time, so um, I called in the hospice team, and it appeared my dad was going to peacefully pass on within a day or two. Weeks later, I'm basically living at the nursing home, you know, napping in a chair, attending to all of his physical needs, and, you know, holding his hand and... He's just gasping, gasping, but he just keeps hanging on. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, but he's just not going anywhere. And, you know, we're kind of jokingly telling him, Uncle Ed's waiting for you, he's got a tea time, but he wasn't going anywhere. So after, you know, over three weeks of this, I was just spent I had a lot of support from my younger brother, my cousins, my friends were texting me all the time, but it just isn't enough to sustain you. I was exhausted physically and emotionally, and though I had promised him he would not die alone, that I would be with him, not to be afraid, I would stay with him till the end, I was beginning to think this just wasn't possible. This one particular evening, I had decided this is it. I couldn't do it anymore. The next day was my birthday. And trying to figure out how to tell my dad to tell him, you know, I love you but I just, I'm sorry I I know I made that promise but I just can't really keep it and this nurse came in who was going home and she was, you know, leaving for the evening and she came in to say goodbye to me and she slipped me this little brown bag and in it was a small bottle of Bailey's Irish cream and she said, this is just for you maybe, you know, you could drink this and you'd be able to get a little sleep tonight. She went and got this herself. This was beyond, this had nothing to do with work. This was just a human connection. Whatever the reason, it meant that she saw that I was suffering too, that it was difficult for me, and the long and the short of it is, I drank my Bailey's Irish cream that night. I stayed with my dad. It was a very, very difficult night, and my dad died at seven in the morning. I don't think it was until, you know, after my dad had died that it really struck me. Without that small gesture of kindness uh, from this nurse, I. Probably would have left that night and my dad would have died alone. That seemingly small gesture was incredibly important to me and is something that I won't ever forget.
1: Hi, I'm Shirley Digert. I'm a mail carrier, rural mail carrier in Girlsbeck, Texas. I am not the kind of person that would naturally be drawn to skydiving. I'm not one to take chances like that.
4: I'm David Hartsock. I think uh, for myself, it's kind of like therapy almost, because when you're skydiving, you can't be thinking about, did I leave the oven on? Oh my gosh, I got that paperwork that I got to do for work.
1: My older son had gone skydiving on his 30th birthday. So when my younger son, two years later, decided to celebrate his 30th birthday the same way, he invited me along. At that time, I just looked over at my husband, and he's like, very wide-eyed, looking at me. Hmm, you're really going to do this? I says, oh my gosh, yeah, let's do it.
4: It was obvious she was nervous about it. So I tried to make it as lighthearted as possible.
1: He just come walking straight up to me, looking right in my eye, and stuck his hand out there and introduced himself.
4: One of the things I always tell my students to try to calm their nerves is that we're connected up there. There's no way the person's going to get away from me. So I told her that you can be sure that nothing's going to happen to you because I'm going to make sure nothing happens to me.
1: And so we go taxiing off. We're like above the clouds. We're way up there. It looked like I was going to be doing this. (laughs) Yeah.
4: We got to the door. I crossed her hands in front of her, tilted her head back against my shoulder, and rocked forward, back in the plane, and out we go. One, One two, two three. three.
1: And we bailed out of the plane. We did a free fall for a while. You didn't feel like you were really falling, you felt like you were in a, a wind tunnel almost or something like that. It's just very windy. and it was beautiful. I couldn't hardly wait till the parachute would open and then I could just really get a good view of everything.
4: I deployed the primary parachute. Then you're expecting to go into a nice smooth glide and instead we got hit like a brick wall. The canopy was flapping very hard because half of it had not inflated.
1: We were going around so fast and so hard We were like laying out flat we were going around like that it was just made me very dizzy
4: i realized well i've got to cut this canopy away so it'll get away from us and then i can deploy the reserve parachute but the way the parachute had so violently opened it had jerked the harness that she was in and the harness i was in and the handle that should have been right accessible on the right side of my body Had folded underneath the harness I was wearing.
1: And I could hear him grunting and trying hard. You could just hear him trying hard to reach something.
4: And so that's when she asked me if everything was okay. And I was honest with her and told her no, it was not okay. That we had a serious problem.
1: And it's like the world stopped. And all I could think about was. my husband not really wanting me to go? And why did I push for this? What is happening? I can't believe this might happen.
4: I realized that we were in a very, very serious situation and it was probably not going to end well.
1: I thought about my mom. I had just lost my mom not too long before that and I thought about seeing my mom again and knew I was going to. And then when I thought about my mom, I thought about my kids. My kids and my grandkids, three grandchildren, and my husband and my other son were on the ground watching this. And I just said, God, I didn't want them to have to see this. I just knew this was my moment, that this was my last day on earth.
4: Knowing that her two sons and her husband could see their mother and wife spinning into the ground thinking oh my god she's going to be dead and i wasn't going to let that happen no matter what at that point you know we were probably down to three thousand feet and i went ahead and deployed the reserve parachute but unfortunately all i did was get tangled up into the main parachute i was looking down at the ground to see where we were headed it's pretty much a farm area, so there's houses, barns, barbed wire fences, all kinds of things you can hit that it's going to kill you. I had a brief thought about, well, this is my fate, oh well, you know, the primary thing now is to make sure that at least one of us survives, and that one person that needs to survive is the student. And I figured what I would do is swing my body underneath hers so that that way she would land on me. The last three seconds, just as we were spinning in, I told her to raise her legs.
1: He said, get ready for a rough landing, Shirley. I was laying right smack on top of David. He was on his back on the ground. I was right on top of him. And I could hear him trying to breathe like let out a hard breath. All I could think about is, oh my gosh, we gotta help him get up. I I didn't think about all that could be wrong with him. I just wanted him to get up.
4: When I woke up in the hospital, I think the first time that I can actually remember waking up, my mom was right there by my bedside, and because of the collapsed lungs, they had to put a tracheot- they had to do a tracheotomy so I had a trach in my throat so I couldn't speak. I couldn't move any of my limbs but my mom was there and she told me I was a quadriplegic. Yeah, I'd broken my the bone in my neck and I was paralyzed from the chest down. I was thinking, Well, that ain't so bad, you know, I'm still alive which you know Surprised the hell out of me.
1: So I went into the intensive care unit. And I talked with him. He couldn't talk. He had a deal in his mouth that he couldn't really talk. But his eyes told me everything. When he saw the neck brace on me, tears just ran down his cheeks. He felt so bad that I had been hurt. I could not believe it that he could be so caring about everybody, and he was hurting so bad. But I hugged him at that time, and I kissed him on the side of his forehead, and I told him that I loved him. You know, I've always been the kind of person that kind of looked out for someone else, too. But this was so above and beyond anything you can imagine. Goodness, what could have gone through his head? When we were going down, and he knew what was going to happen. And he was just trying to make sure that I got out of this okay. You know, he was going to take the whole brunt of it. I mean, for me. (laughs) For me. I mean, little old me. Ever since this happened, there has not been one day that I have not thought about him.
5: My name is Sean O'Connor, and I grew up in Massachusetts in a town called Plainville with my grandmother and my mom, and someone who I grew up with pretty much my entire life was my Uncle Scott, who this is really about.
6: Uh, My name is Stacia Wydak, and I had six children, but Scotty passed away, so he's not with us. And I live in Plainville. I've been here 54 years. I love it here, and it was a perfect home for my son, Scott. My husband passed away 20-some years ago, so I was left with Scotty. Thank God I had Scotty. He was my best friend.
5: He lived with my grandmother for his entire life, and um, he was just, you know, one of the best people I've ever known in my life. He was the most selfless Loving, kind, human being.
6: Oh, he had a smile for everyone. When he met people, he would invite everybody to the house. And I remember in Florida, I wasn't prepared for this, but he went at the pool and he said, oh, come on over. My mom wants you to come and eat with us. I had no idea, but that's what it was. He loved people.
5: Some people with Down syndrome, I think that they're explained to like what their condition is and whatnot. But um, my family had an interesting outlook and they tried to treat him as normal as he possibly could be. For a lot of his life, he stayed at home and he had a job downstairs, uh, which is essentially doing paperwork that really didn't have any meaning behind it except for him, he would document, like, the TV schedule and what shows were coming on.
6: We're in a tri-level house, so he's got his office downstairs. That's what he calls it. Because we're in business, and I guess he saw the brothers and sisters doing this office work, and he felt that he wanted to have an office. So we set up a computer, and he had his television, and he could watch all his shows. Bonanza was one of the favorites because he didn't like anything with violence in it that he did not like but he loved vanna white with the uh, price is right and oh the christmas shows oh he would cry if if things got a, a little a little sad he would be crying down there watching tv he never wanted anyone to be hurt or hurting he never wanted that you know
5: Scott faced medical challenges his entire life, not having the same amount of chromosomes genetically as as people without Down syndrome, and he was always like feeling half and half. It was sort of a slow progression to when he developed liver disease, and uh, the sort of the terminal fate of his medical condition started setting in, like two to one year before he died. In the winter of 2012, uh, our entire family knew his condition was really declining, and then he ended up in the hospital. He was in and out of the hospital constantly, and none of us wanted to leave him at any moment by himself. So it was my night to stay at the hospital all night, and I didn't get much sleep. He was up all night in pain, and I got back home, and it was just one of the most stressful, depressing days of my entire life, and I turned to Reddit, and I was like, Hey Reddit, my 47-year-old uncle Scott Widak has Down syndrome and is terminally ill with liver disease. He is currently bedridden and living out his last days at home with my 85-year-old grandmother. One of his favorite things to do is open mail, dot, dot, dot. Anyone feel like sending him a letter or a card? There was no mail. And then on the second day, there was about 10 letters that came in. And then, like the next two days, it all started pouring in, and there was crates of mail from the post office and my aunts would walk it into the house, like crates of mail.
6: Yeah, he said something about Reddit, and I said, Reddit? I don't know, because I'm not a computer person, I'm sorry, but I'm 85 years old, so lo and behold.
5: Within a few days, we got, I think, a little over 2,000 pieces of mail from all over the world. I think it was up to like 40 countries or something like that. It was crazy. Oh,
3: my
6: goodness. Then Scotty was very sick. He couldn't get out of bed. But we would all take turns reading letters to Scotty, and he loved it. could see how he was so happy that someone is telling him, Scotty, get well. Scotty, you like Bonanza, and I like it, too. That's what people would say, you know?
5: This letter comes from Australia, and he's included all kinds of stuff in here five Australian dollars. He says, Hi, Scott. My name is John and I live in Brisbane, Australia, but we aren't upside down like some people think. Your nephew said that you liked to get mail and enjoyed country music as well as drawing. I saw some of your pictures and they looked great. I wish I could draw half as well as you. You may know that we have kangaroos and koalas down here, but we also have all sorts of other animals and plants, including the 10 most deadly snakes in the world." I have popped in some goodies for you to look at and keep as mementos. Give your mom a kiss for me as she's a great lady. From the land down under, John. And they're all like that. Honestly, every letter has an immense amount of thought put into it. If he got this one letter from Australia when he was healthy... He would keep this for the rest of his life. This would be up on his wall. He would show people this for years to come. Like, whenever they would come over. And he got thousands of these. It's unbelievable. Like, about three and a half to four months after the mail came in, he passed away. And the last time I ever saw him walk, or that we know he walked, was... We had moved the mail downstairs when he was bedridden upstairs, and he had actually walked down to his downstairs room and got a crate of mail and walked back up. Towards the end there, like the last week or so, my grandmother slept on the couch in the living room next to his hospital bed. The hospital bed couldn't fit two people, but if it could, she would have been right in the bed with him
6: when he got very sick then he wanted me close to him so what i did i slept on the sofa in the living room and i said scotty i can watch you and you can watch me we can watch one another and he would go to sleep peacefully you know happy that i was nearby
5: as much as this is about scotty and the mail he's received and the strangers who sent the mail it's a lot about her too, because she's just she was his counterpart and the person who who took care of him his entire life, his best friend, and uh, she deserves all the credit in the world um, for what she's done. Definitely, it was a pretty unique mother and son relationship, very positive one, very beautiful one.
0: My name is Maureen Festa, and I live in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. In the summer of 2009, um, my ex-husband and I separated. Um, It was amicable. We had tried to work on our marriage. It just wasn't working. Going along with our separation, we were going to sell our house. We were trying to figure out how we would split up our things, how we would split up our dog. (laughs) But on top of it, my mother, who has since passed away, had breast cancer, and she was um, at that point in in terminal cancer. So things were quite stressful. And in the course of one single week, we filed our divorce papers, we put our house on the market, and then I lost my job. I was called into a meeting in the morning. Um, my boss had come over and said, you know, can you come downstairs to, the, to the, where the meeting was being held? I grabbed a notebook and a pen, walked down to the room, walked in, saw our VP and the HR person, and was told that I didn't have a job anymore. And I put my head down on that desk and sobbed and told them, you have no idea what's going on in my life, and I can't, I can't lose my job right now. I, there's nothing else that I have. I was escorted from the building. Someone else grabbed my purse for me, and that was it. When I was um, going to leave my house that I owned and we were selling the house, I preferred to stay in my part of Jamaica Plain. I just felt like with everything being up in the air, I really wanted to stay local, and neighbors of mine They knew of another couple in the neighborhood, Kate and Andy, that were purchasing a two-family house. And so I kind of threw all my eggs in one basket, exactly what you're not supposed to do, (laughs) and uh, made an appointment to go the day after they closed on the house at 6 o'clock. As it happened, that was the day that I got laid off. I met him at the house. It was the first time I was going to see it from the inside. And I walked up to the door and I just said, Andy, you're not going to want to rent to me. I lost my job today. He absolutely could have said, Oh, well, we'll have to think about it. Or we'll get back to you. I mean, what's the first thing that you'd want is someone who's employed. And Andy said to me, Well, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll work something out. If they hadn't let me rent the apartment, I'd honestly don't know what I would have done. It grounded me when I had nothing. The bottom felt like it was falling out. And to know that I didn't have to move far, that I could stay where I had lived for 15 years, meant a lot to me. It really made it feel like if nothing else, the rug wasn't being pulled out from underneath me, like I had a place to be. And I knew I could make it a home. I still live in my apartment. I moved in 2009, so it's been five years, and my landlords and I have really become more than just friends. It's like a family. We'll share dinners. We share holidays. Um, Their son calls me Aunt Maureen. Andy, one time, someone asked him how he shows love to someone. If he loves someone, what does he show to them? And he said he feeds them. And that's exactly what it's been like, you know? And it's, there are times when I feed them. They said yes. And I was so grateful.
7: Hi, my name is Jana. I live in Belgium and I am a student. I was with my boyfriend, Um, and we were walking home when we had a fight. Um, It was over something very silly, something really insignificant. Our opinions didn't align perfectly, but um, you know how, in the heat of an argument, small things can seem very important, you know? From an outsider's perspective, it must have really looked like a serious, terrible fight. And I decided um, that, you know, if I stay here now, I might say things that I'm going to regret because I get caught up in arguments. So I decided to cross the street and go into the park. It was about 11 at night, so it was dark. And I was just loitering around the park, you know, trying to calm myself down. And suddenly this person calls out to me from behind me. Hey, you know that he loves you, right? I got a little scared, naturally. 40-something guy, park at night, you know, all these red flags popping up. But there was something about his posture and the way he talked. He kept his distance. He had come, like, quite a ways into the park just to find me. And he suddenly, he dropped my boyfriend's name. He said, the guy in the entrance, you know, the blonde guy, he's waiting for you. And he told me that he loves you. Do you love him? And I replied, yes, yes, I do. And I really want to make things right. And he said, you know, come on, let's go back. It felt so surreal. I'm not the type of person who likes, you know, the romantic movies and and the romantic ending. Uh, I'm not that type of person, but at the time it really felt like I was part of one of those movies. He took me by the hand because I was still crying like a child. And he led me back to the entrance of the park to find my boyfriend. He said, you know, all right, this fight is over right now and you're going to kiss and make up which we did I swear to you we had completely forgotten about the fight it was just so meaningless you know I was very moved and I asked him you know why are you doing this you don't know us had we been unreceptive to the things you said you might have I don't know gotten beaten up and he said you know I've been married twice in my life my first wife uh She and I, we fought a lot. And they ended up breaking up over a very small, unimportant thing. Not unlike what me and my boyfriend had just gone through. He said it was like seeing a flashback. And then he remarried. But it wasn't soon after that his wife was sadly diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. He said, you know, we wouldn't fight a lot. But now that she's gone, all I can remember is wasted time. And he said, it's just not worth it. If you have found someone special in your life, you keep them close and you do not fight over these small things. And I learned that the hard way. His sole goal that night was to go into the park, patch things up between us, and make sure that we didn't fight over something so small again.
2: You just heard stories by Zachy Zor, Michael May, and Lisa Tobin. Kind World isn't just about listening. It's about conversation. We want to hear your stories of kindness. So reach out. We're on Facebook, Twitter at WBUR Kind World. And you can email me at kindworld at wbur.org. And make sure you subscribe to the Kind World podcast in iTunes if you haven't already. From all of us at WBUR, happy Thanksgiving.